You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. If my father was standing here next to me, you would swear we were brothers. I look like him, and I've been told my entire life that I have his physique. And this is where the comparison really stops. (laughs) Although I grew up in the city that he lives in, I don't know him that well. This This, of course, was a choice my father made. I knew that he worked hard as a crew chief for an airline, and that was about it. My mother, my younger brother, and I lived a life without a man doing manly things for us. He would come around from time to time and see us, uh, but there was no normalcy to this. I remember months and sometimes years going by and never hearing from him. Of course, for the big moments in my life, he would come around, make sure he was seen by all on the outside. His chest would be out, and he would talk as if he had done those things, those fatherly things as if he taught me how to hold the door open for my dates, or ride a bike, or even throw a ball. My brother and I would still send him Father Day cards, and although we did not care for him much, we tried to respect him. Time would pass, and my brother and I grew grew up And we learned that all that time my father was not with us. He was living with another family in the same city and raising a girl and a boy that were not his children. I was in college when I really understood him and I understood who taught me what being a parent and a father was all about. I knew that if I was ever fortunate to be a father, that all I had to do was the complete opposite of what he taught me through his actions. What I also knew was that it was my mother who taught me about being a father. So on this Father's Day, I want to thank my departed mother for the following. That being a parent means sacrificing. I want to thank her for showing me love is not perfect, but it's always present. That although your kids are a part of you, they are different people. That real love is 
saying no to your kids sometimes because you do love them. That once you have kids, you are a parent for the rest of your life. That being an involved parent is a gift and a blessing, even when it's difficult. Most importantly, on this Father's Day, I want to thank my mom for loving me. Loving me enough to make me a man and for teaching me to be a father. Come, let us worship together. Good morning. I, have, uh, I only have brothers, no sisters, and I have two sons, no daughters, and it's fair to say that my experience of fatherhood is very much wrapped in, up with masculinity, and my experiences of being a boy, and a brother, and a son, and then a man, and then a father, these last 13 years as I've tried to raise my precious baby boys into happy, responsible men. Responsible men. So as I thought about this reflection, I found myself being squeamish as I contemplated speaking about masculinity and manhood. Like, what was I going to say? What are these manly virtues I believe in? Because any answer I could come up with that, to that question were just adjectives I would use to describe most of the women and genderqueer people in my life. Morally, morally strong, responsible for others, clear-headed, etc. So not a helpful concept, that. Uh, on the other hand, however, it would be foolish of me to ignore the fact that my dear boys are surrounded by messages about masculinity and manhood all the time, at home and at school, on the dreaded internet, in books and video games. But I've realized that at the end of the day, right now, I'm much less afraid of the reality that my children are extremely likely to explore their sexuality through ubiquitous internet pornography, or even spend their free time playing violent video games, as I am of them being seduced by the nearly unavoidable internet culture of cruel, wounded, straight manhood that has broken into the mainstream the last decade. I'm talking about the Bernie bros, who'd rather vote for Trump than a woman to be president. Or the guys who harass and taunt and threaten publicly feminist writers and critics. Or the guys who announce they're going to boycott all future Star Wars movies because the latest one had a woman of color in a prominent supporting role. Like what happened to them? to the guys whose reaction to the possibility that the future could be a place where political, social, and cultural power is available to more and more people, regardless of biological sex or gender identity, racial identity, skin color, national origin, regardless of who someone loves or has sex with, or what pronouns they use or who they live with, regardless of what language they speak or sign, or whether they walk or use a wheelchair, the guys whose reaction is to fight that possibility and to claim that those other people want something for free, want special treatment or playing the victim card, when of course what all those other people are asking for are things that I more or less take for granted most days as a middle-class, cisgendered, heterosexual white dude, that I have the right to exist in public without my body being commented upon, that I have the right to live and move around this city 
without the scrutiny of law enforcement, that how I construct my family is my own business, and that when people disagree with me or don't like my ideas, it's probably because they're bad ideas, and not because people are secretly questioning, questioning the legitimacy of my seat at the table. So how do I try to teach this to my children? It's something I wonder about a lot. And, and I guess a lot of it is just talking with them about it, trying to help them understand the unearned privileges they receive, and that they have the power to call that out, or to decenter their comfort and their needs, and even their voices in some settings, to remind them that especially in s situations of asymmetrical cultural power, that many people who don't share their privileges may not speak up because they have no reason to believe it would be safe or welcome for them to speak up. And part of it, I think, is trying to help them imagine and to think about the world and to imagine what is possible, that there is nothing inevitable about the racial segregation and stratification in our neighborhoods and schools, that the gender pay cap, the gap, or our culture's violent control of women's bodies do not stem from some biological imperative but by a billion little decisions people make every day, people like me, um, which also, that means that we could live in a different world. We could make different decisions. In that world where power is truly equitably shared across society, and more than anything, I want them to want that world, to be able to visualize it, to yearn for it, and to see how they are helping to build it, and to see when they are part of the problem. Because I think that is what responsible men do. Does your child have an advanced directive? Does my five-month-old son have an advanced directive? He's a baby. That's the moment the stakes became abundantly clear. It wasn't the days before when my th son Thaddeus wasn't acting like himself. It wasn't when we decided to take him to the emergency room at Children's. It wasn't when the doctors kept echoing the refrain, your child is very sick. It wasn't when they moved us to the, from the ER to the pediatric ICU. It wasn't even when the doctor told us that with sodium levels this low, he didn't understand why our son wasn't having seizures. It was that question, does your child have an advanced directive? I did the best thing I could think of. I deferred to my wife. <laughs> now, before you pass judgment, I have two very good reasons. One, Claire's an attorney. Um, she drafts healthcare directives for people on a regular basis. And two, I was scared out of my mind. The next few hours of my life were the most terrifying. Doctors sedated Thaddeus and inserted a central line. Those hours turned into days, but finally the medical team stabilized Thaddeus. And the focus shifted to detective work. While he was becoming, in the words of one nurse, a happy, juicy baby, a team of amazing nurses, residents, floor doctors, nephrologists, urologists, endocrinologists, and countless other ologists worked tirelessly to solve this puzzle of why Thad had gotten so sick so fast. Claire and I worked out a plan. She would take care of Thad in the hospital, and I would take care of everything else. During the evenings, I'd go home and um, get our three-year-old daughter, Harriet, fed, bathed, and off to bed. Then in the mornings, I'd bring her to the next amazing person on our support network, give her a hug and kiss goodbye. It broke my heart every day saying goodbye to her every morning. 
And it broke my heart saying goodbye to Claire and Thad every night. No matter where I was, I wasn't whole. Thad, while happier and juicier every day, was still tethered to a sculpture of hanging bags and lit panels delivering fluids and medications. I would hold him and sing to him until my voice was hoarse and I couldn't think of any more songs. And Father's Day came and went. I brought Harriet to visit her brother in the hospital. I tried to help her understand what was going on and why her brother was hooked up to all the machines. Eventually, he became more self-sufficient. The IVs were unplugged. His playful sounds returned. He was smiling, looking at faces, even giggling again. Nine days after we took our baby to the ER, we were finally discharged. Due to severe bladder reflux, a urinary tract infection had spread to his kidneys and had become life-threatening. We also learned that Thad suffers from adrenal insufficiency. His body doesn't make enough of the stress hormone cortisol, which he needed to fight the infection. One year, two surgeries, 25 doctor's appointments, five hospital visits totaling 18 days, and 1,095 doses of hydrocortisone later, our happy, juicy baby has become a fearless, precocious toddler. A little boy who loves pulling our cat's tails, splashing in the bathtub, and climbing on the couches. A child who can do anything any other kid can do, short of making his own cortisol. When each of my children was born, my heart cracked wide open. I felt more love than I knew I was capable of. That's what fatherhood is to me, this giant, raw joy of connection with my children. It drives me to hold my daughter upside down until she can't stop laughing. It drives me to put my son on my shoulders while he yanks on my hair and shrieks with delight. It drives me to protect them. I laugh when they laugh, and I suffer when they suffer. I would have done anything to switch places with my son in that hospital bed, but that's not how it works. So sometimes the spiritual practice of fathering is feeling helpless and making sure everyone has a clean change of clothes. I remember thinking when we left the hospital after our first son was born, wow, security sure is lax around here. <laughs> like, they just let us walk out and we have no idea how to actually parent this little one. <laughs> when our second son was born just over four years ago, I felt only slightly more prepared when we left the hospital. And then to my surprise, I very quickly realized that most of what I'd learned with our first son didn't actually apply to our second son. So yes, I had six years of parenting under my belt, and a lot of that experience was totally irrelevant. Because our sons are unique beings with unique wiring and needs, and they need me to father in particular in different ways to them. The truth is I have been really slow to learn this. Pardon the weird analogy, but it's like our first son is an automatic car, and our second son is stick shift, right? I'm not saying one is better than the other. There's no judgment, not automatic or stick shift here. They're just fundamentally different experiences, right? Like you're using two feet with the clutch and the brake. It's just, and you, it's just, they're very different experiences. And at times, I've treated both of my kids like they're automatics, 
or stick shifts, and then I wonder, like, why aren't we getting anywhere? Why isn't this working? Bedtime is an example of this. From the beginning, our oldest was about the practical details of the bedtime routine. Would we get him a cup of fresh water? Would we bring him a wet cloth if it was hot or turn on his fan? Would we lay next to him in bed until he fell asleep? He didn't really want to cuddle, but he just wanted us there. Those were the things that comforted him. That was his lullaby song, if you will. Some of this routine worked for our youngest, but he also wanted a bedtime routine that included a blessing and a prayerful reminder that there were no monsters or lions or zombies <laughs> or dragons in the house and that he could sleep safely knowing he was surrounded by people that loved him. That was the particular lullaby song routine that our youngest needed. The spiritual lesson here is bigger than parenting, of course. It's about attending to what is right in front of us with curiosity and openness. The spiritual lesson here is to see the person, the child, the stranger, the friend, the parent, the partner, as they are, not as we want them to be. In other words, the spiritual work is to attend, to listen, to figure out the right lullaby song to sing to those we love. I'm the only one up here wearing the dad shirt, though. <laughs> Old jerky dads, yeah. Does anyone here have a friend or a colleague who feels like it is their duty, their responsibility, their call in life to observe and diagnose other people's behaviors and motivations? <laughs> Anybody? Well, I work with one of those people who last week sat down next to me and leaned over my lunch and nodded her head towards someone at the end of the lunch table. And I knew only two things could happen in that moment. She was either going to take some of my fries <laughs> or she was going to offer one of her insightful and empathic commentaries. She must have known that if she tried to take any of my fries, a quick and decisive hand slap was waiting for her. So she decided to speak. You know, so-and-so is brown-nosing the boss a lot lately. I look dispassionately at her and eat my fries. You have seen it, haven't you? Seen it in the staff meetings? I dip in the ketchup. You know what I think. Now I give her that D-G-A-F look, figure out the acronym later. <laughs> I, think she, I think she has daddy issues. Okay, I'm going to have to engage here. Just what do you mean by daddy issues? She says, you know, women who don't get enough love, affection, direction, understanding, and support from their fathers. I finish my fries and I leave. But that got me thinking. Daddy issues, mommy dearest, these disparaging terms, these mommy daddy tropes that cover our culture and bathe us sometimes at lunchtime. Why do we treat parents 
we call fathers differently from the parents we call mothers. Now certainly the commercial and celebratory investments in Father's Day pale in comparison to Mother's Day. We dads and mops, my name as a parent in my family, we dads and mops do not get quiche lunches very often. The beautiful flowers, no. Musical cards that, op that open up and sing to you and the effusive words and praise and thanks, not so much. I was looking at television last night and, and they're having this big sale at Menards today for Father's Day steel. <laughs> I kid you not. Every kind of steel tool you can imagine is on sale today for Father's Day. And it's the night before the commercial is running. Not all week like Mother's Day and months before. Now, I'm not complaining. I like the ties. I like the oven mitt for the grill. I like the handmade card written on a paper towel that my oldest daughter gave me one year because she had forgotten to go to Target. <laughs> but as I dive deeper, I've come to consider that fatherhood is an optional vocation, where motherhood, in its most traditional manifestation, is less optional. For those who are mothers who have given birth, this biological event, this extraordinary capability to hold and bring forth life is not optional until after birth. This amazing biological distinction puts the onus on mothers to verbally disclose that a father is a father. You've seen the shows. Okay, we've got the envelope. Jim, you are the father from the paternity test. Disclosed that you are the father through science. Fathers have to recognize, agree, and claim fatherhood. It is here that we see the differences. While traditional motherhood is seen through the lens of biology, fatherhood could be seen through the lens of culture. And in our Western culture, fatherhood is connected to certain values. Fatherhood is country. Fatherhood is God, a status, a position often poised in a hierarchical distance that is to be feared and respected. And in exchange for the regard of fatherhood, women and children are told that patriarchy will protect and defend them. Now, while we have made some progress in this country, we, if we're really honest, not all of us in the West have evolved from the 1930s distant, silent, stoic father stereotype to the sensitive, stay-at-home dads who carry their babies in wraps on their way to the co-op. Many fathers of all genders and persuasions still have to choose every day to share responsibility for the caring of children, the provision of sustenance, and the nurturing of home. Now, while there are clear movements to challenge the hegemony of patriarchy, we must remain vigilant 
against the deeply ingrained cultural expectations and biological imperatives that have created these constructs and associations of both fatherhood and motherhood. And our Unitarian Universalist principles can help us do that. Our second principle about justice, equity, and compassion in human relations guides us to respect fairness and self-determination of individuals and groups. We Unitarian Universalists have been leaders in the justice movements to fight for the right for individual humans to self-define themselves, their gender, and their parenthood. Parents have more choices than mothers and fathers. One can curate one's own gender, thus making the parental mother and father much more nuanced more fluid, more customized. As you use, we seek freedom, freedom to explore our direct experiences to create our belief systems, our values, and our approaches to parenting. Our fourth principle that describes a free and responsible search for truth and meaning often moves us to challenge and deconstruct those systems that might limit our options for our own declaration of identity. The current and likely continued degenderization of culture makes new identities possible. The degendering of adoption forms in Illinois the degendered adoption forms in Illinois in the year 2000 made it possible for me to adopt my first child. If those forms were gendered, I could not have adopted her. Instead of saying mother and father, we were so lucky that it said parent one and parent two on the form. The degendering of bathrooms has taken the dress and the pants symbols off of much signage around the country. The degendering of family roles has made it possible for parents to share and negotiate responsibilities based on talent and interest instead of bodily attributes and cultural norms. But outside the bubble of the progressive and forward-thinking communities, there is concern. You don't need to watch toddlers and tiaras to know that children are still being raised in very gender-specific ways. As Gloria Steinem says, we've begun to raise daughters more like sons, but few have the courage to raise our sons like our daughters. Now, while I agree with her statement, I would set the goalpost even further, that we push to evolve to the point where her statement is as meaningless as the prospect of raising a blue-eyed child more like a brown-eyed child. While we Unitarian Universalists may differ on many things, in our most pedestrian moments of unity, 
we all care about fairness, equity. Fairness and equity. The whole prospect of the end of gender, after all, is about fairness. We know that separate but equal had a history of failure. So let's do away with all the separateness between motherhood and fatherhood. In the end, we would gain so much energy that is now wasted on power struggles and on following or sometimes bucking the myriad prescriptions of gender. Let's let us have personal family and community freedom to become expansive. Free fatherhood and motherhood from their boxes. Free fatherhood and motherhood from guilt and shame. Free fatherhood and motherhood from the twisted knots our souls often feel on these two days. So I leave you with a question to think about for the next year. Is it worth imagining a year without Mother's Day or Father's Day? What if the creativity and expansive nature of Unitarian Universalism creates something new. Creates something new. I have some ideas, do you? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.